if we live this, this is the basis of all our school, all our parish relationships from the staff to the children, to the uh, parents, to the parishioners, no matter how frequent they are, how committed they are, but our parish becomes a little city of Mary mm. where people come and experience God's presence. I love that. Yeah. I know we just said love a, a billion times, but I, I love that so much. That yeah. is such a perfect yeah. dissemination of what it means to be mm-hmm. a saint and how to, how to live that out. Yeah. Hello and welcome back to Beyond the Bulletin, the parish podcast of St. Anthony of Padua. My name is Nate Hoffman. I am the Communications and Development Coordinator here at St. Anthony, and today I am joined by two men. <laughs> two men. My, mm. Michael Gormley. You can hear him now, Michael Gormley. And Hey-o. then, last but not least, Father Jesse Garcia. What's up, Father Jesse? Yeah, nothing's up. <laughs> No, I'm I'm very up. I'm very happy. <laughs> it's awesome so, to have you here on the podcast. Thank this you. Is, I'm happy great. to be here. It's a joy to be here. Absolutely, <laughs> Father. It's good to have you. You've been here thank what you. a month now? Not All even less than less yeah. than twenty three days. It just seems like a month. Time really drags. <laughs> it does. Seems so, like when you're years and years. Gosh, yes, you no, are no. boring. No, well, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> could be, yeah, but we try to make things exciting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what are your thoughts? Twenty three days in. What, what What are your thoughts? Well, it's a huge parish, and <laughs> so many people to meet, um, but so many beautiful souls that I've met so far, and so I just look forward to meeting all the staff first met with some of the deacons, of course, the priests. So um, I just discover one beautiful soul after another uh, have gotten complaints and uh, email complaints, but those are also beautiful. (laughs) And so um, I'm happy to respond to them. And so it's always people who want to be heard. And I'm good at that. I'm good at listening. So that's awesome. And as someone who went for a meeting with you and it lasted over two hours, you are good at listening. Yeah. And for someone good. who's obsessed with hearing the sound of his own voice, me, uh, thank you for that. <laughs> <laughs> welcome. Really give Mike yeah, a yeah. platform to, to talk, <laughs> share his uh, feelings. A background is needed for everything. Yeah. yeah. Just to put it into light. So that's Mary's role. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, and we're going to get into that a okay, lot more a little bit later. Yeah, that's a that's an interesting comment. I want to ask you about that okay, comment. But sure. so, Father, the whole this podcast has generally been a, a kind of a tour of the parish. I've I've, I've had Veronica on the, the okay. youth ministers, people uh, people like that, getting to know all the ministries we do here. Now, now that we have a new pastor, mm-hmm. uh, it seems like a great opportunity to get to know you, uh, okay. introduce you to the parish. I know um, I, I was at your first week in mass, and you shared a lot about your. Uh, your history with yes. uh, you being from San Antonio That's and um, you know working in, in overseas and in, in several different places. Different places, yeah. Is South America considered overseas because you could technically drive there? That's a good point. I don't think so. Hmm. I don't think so. You were in Colombia, yeah. Yeah. Would you Here consider we... that overseas? Nah. No, well, I did. I, I did fly over to Colombia. You over flew the overseas. Atlantic, yes. so. <laughs> I'd say it was over the sea. Felt over the sea. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we want, we thought we, we'd uh, dive into that a little bit deeper. I know okay. a lot of parishioners have, have heard that, uh, your incredible story of uh, mm-hmm. getting into the Focalora movement um, right. and, and teaching uh, and yeah. uh, managing a, a nonprofit uh, in, in Canada, in Canada and, and all yeah. those things. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I thought we could maybe go over all of that and, then, and, and dive a little deeper into some of those things that are, that are sure. super fascinating. Absolutely. So... What do you want to know? <laughs> you know, I like, to think of, yeah. I like to think of 
when I when I explain Texas to my friends, mm. they say, "Well, what is Texas like?" And I'm like, "Texas is like everything, right?" The, but the way I break it down is, Houston feels like the most cosmopolitan of Texas cities. Yes. It's a little bit of everything. It's so corporate, yes. people from all over. Right. So its personality is largely driven by obviously oil and gas, but driven by the mm. corporate culture. Dallas seems to me to be the most like Texan. Like mm-hmm. when you think about Texas, I think about Dallas, Texas, and cattle. Yes, yes. It's, it's funny. Hats. There's no yes. cattle in Dallas, right. but That's you right. think of cattle when you think of Dallas. Uh-huh. When I think of Austin, I think of like the eclectic and the local mm. and the keep Austin weird type thing. Mm. You know, cowboy meets hippie. And when I think of San Antonio, I think of it's the most Mexican yes. of Texas. That's and right. it, it preserves that. I remember there was a, a T-shirt, uh, a T-shirt store. <laughs> the T-shirt in the front window said, don't call me a Latino. I'm a Mexican. Right. And I was right. like, heck yeah, that guy's excited. But mm-hmm. uh, that that flavor, that experience, San Antonio preserves that, I think, of the big cities, the yes. most, you know. In fact, you've heard of Fiesta, Texas, right? Yes. So it's a Six Flags oh, yeah. theme park. But I remember when I first got there, the first music that was heard was a mariachi band, and mm-hmm. it sounded phenomenal. Yeah. Because it was all ampl- amplified. Yeah. So, yeah, it, it's very true. You find some of the best uh, Tex-Mex food there. <laughs> there is the uh, west side of San Antonio, where a lot of the uh, people there trace their roots to when Texas was still Mexico before 1836. So really strong identity there with the uh, Hispanic Mexican roots. Yes, absolutely. So what was it like for you growing up in San Antonio area? Well, it was, uh, since that's all I knew, it was just normal. Um, I I mean, also the generation I grew up in was the, uh, well, 60s. I was born in 66. And 70s, so we were, if you think of the differences in generation, we still went outside to play. We still played with the neighbors. We, we used to play Red Rover, Red Rover. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we used to, for the summers, we used to stay up late playing Kick the Can. And uh, so we didn't have internet. We had to come up with, with ways to have fun. Yeah. You know what's so funny about that is for some <laughs> weird reason, I woke up today at 4 o'clock. Mm. My internet's been down all day at my house. Mm. And my kids, they don't have school today. So that we homeschool, right? So we just mm-hmm. didn't do school today. And they're just like, well, what do we do? And it's funny because, like, they're, they're not on the – like, they're rarely on, like, an iPad or whatever, but they can't use it. But I watch, like – I, all my TV is streamed through my internet. I was like, oh, that's true. Right. What am I supposed to do? I can't watch YouTube. <laughs> that's right. Felt like an animal. Felt mm-hmm. like an animal. You yeah. know what I did? I played catch with my son. Ugh. Oh, my God. Ugh. What a revolution. I know. <laughs> it was actually awesome. Yeah, yeah that sure. sounds amazing. Sure. So, anyway, growing up in a large family, we were 10. So, there was always someone to bother, always someone <laughs> to bother me. <laughs> Which one are uh, you in the, the line? I'm number eight, so only two younger than me, so seven older. Um, in fact, uh, so my sib- older siblings always wanted to change our diapers, all, we even <laughs> because uh, we were their dolls, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So they were uh, they were just very nurturing, I guess, uh, in that sense. Isn't um, it funny how in bigger families you have the older kids become surrogate parents? Yeah, you know, and they exactly. Fill in that role. Yep. And so the parents can take a rest. They say, yeah. Oh no no go play with your go play with your sister. Yeah, Jim Gaffigan <laughs> has a great line where he's like, "Being from a big family, your parents were crazy." By the time they got down the line, it's like, mm-hmm. "You are named after grandma." 
And it's like, but by the time you're on your eighth kid, it's like, you're named after a sandwich I ate. Right. <laughs> now go get your brother Reuben and go play outside. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, so we were very Catholic, um, but my parents um, obviously were looking for something more than just Sunday Mass. So they got more involved in the movements, like the charismatic renewal. Mm. I remember at six years old, I was baptized in the Spirit, Oh yeah, um, speaking in tongues, sharing my testimony in front of hundreds of people. As a six-year-old? As a six-year-old, and then I think as a nine-year-old. And <laughs> so I would I, love to hear that testimony. Yeah. I was a life of dissipation right. and drugs. <laughs> Living on the hard streets of kick the can. (laughs) Yeah, uh, conversion happens at every age. (laughs) It does, it can. So yeah, so we were uh, involved, uh, they were involved in the the, uh, Curcio movement, which the Axe Retreats are now a branch of. Um, And so I grew up in this environment of constantly seeking something more Mm. uh, in the spiritual life uh, and in our religious experience. But I went to Catholic schools all my life. My brothers and I got got in trouble. I was 13. Um, I won't tell you what we did. <laughs> uh, oh, man. <laughs> but my my parents said, okay, you're going to an all-boys Catholic school, <laughs> which was Holy Cross. Mm-hmm. All the teachers were brothers. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a coach who was the dean of men, and so he was a disciplinarian. Um, <laughs> but it was a wonderful experience going to that high school. It formed me a lot. Yeah. Uh, through for for the rest of my life, yeah, that was a big experience. Um, I wonder what uh, school Father Matthew went to because Father David also went to an all boys school here in Texas. What are the odds? I know, huh. right? Oh, it turns out that uh, that if you want young men to consider the priesthood, maybe that's a path. Not a bad way to uh, <laughs> move in that direction. Not a bad way. Well, uh, there's a uh, one me out of fifty, so yeah, one in fifty <laughs> chance. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair yeah, enough. Those odds aren't that bad. I mean, yeah. when you consider <laughs> our, our life team classes of what four hundred or yeah. something like yeah. that. Yeah, well, four potentially. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. So where'd you uh, where'd you end up after after high school? Did you go straight into college or did you do something else? Oh no. Well, I uh, so that's when I met the Focolare movement uh, at the age of fifteen. I was a freshman in high school, and there was this band of the Focolare movement. Um, that was visiting or touring the United States, and they their style of music was considered rock opera. What? And, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, that was new to me too. Um, and anyway, uh, so they they sang at a mass at the uh, university where my sister was. She went there to mass that day and heard them sing. So she came home that evening and said that I had to meet these people because she thought I was going to be one of them. Mm. I got curious. So I did go to Mass the next day at the university, and yeah, they sounded nice. It was um, beautiful music, but um, many of them were, well, all of them were for different countries, even from the island country of Malta, which I had never heard of (laughs) up to that point, and then lots of Italians, Portuguese, and so on. Then they invited me to their concert, and so I went to their concert, and I just I didn't understand why my sister would think I would become one of them. <laughs> you guys sound terrible. <laughs> Who was it? The music rock or, and opera? or was it? Because isn't rock opera? Isn't that what yeah. the like the Who and like, yeah? They were very European, so they had like these wings, wing sleeves. Everything you're saying sounds awesome. Yeah, <laughs> wing sleeves. Yeah, it's like Kiss or something. Right? There. Right? Yeah, something like that. And. Uh, 
<laughs> their accents were very heavy, so uh, very thick. I couldn't uh, make out the words that they were singing. Um, in Soviet Russia, opera uh, rocks you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. Yeah, again, I didn't know what she was talking about. Anyway, uh, so later when you know school was over, summer was starting, the Focolari movement had their yearly uh, summer gathering called Ameriopolis. And of course, you know, polis mean, means city and Mary, so it was the city of Mary. And uh, my sister invited me. Uh, she said it, it would be a retreat. And, um, and so I went. Um, but on the bus, on the way to Las Vegas, New Mexico, which is where the Mariopolis was going to take place, there were screaming babies. There were elderly people. There were young people. Mm. And everyone in between. Um, and so my first impression was this is not going to be a very profound retreat with all this noise. <laughs> it was a six-year-old in the front of the bus giving his testimony. It was right, amazing. exactly. <laughs> but what I sensed was this ongoing effort of everyone on the bus to, uh, to listen to each other, to be interested in each other. I saw so many people smiling, and I'm thinking, why are they smiling? What are they smiling about? Mm. <laughs> and... Um, and so we got to the uh, to the university where the the, the Mariopolis was going to take place, and this young man, my little younger than me, comes and grabs my bag and takes me to my room. And I thought, wow, he just uh, I don't know him, but it's like he knows he's supposed to be serving. <laughs> yeah. So I got that impression. Anyway, long story short, um, just the the different experiences that people were sharing. The, the interactions between everyone, how um, when families with children came to the lunch line, everyone would push, push them to the front, um, and then other parents helping with other parents' babies, and it was never a burden. All of that dynamic made me realize that the new commandment of Jesus was being put into practice in those little, little, little ways. Mm. And that all of that is what was building the city of Mary. And so that was, that's a Mariopolis. It's a place where the only law is the law of the new commandment, love one another. And so um, that was just a small example of what later became permanent Mariopolises, so actual geographical areas, 21 throughout the world, um, where people live according to the law of love one another, but um, but their entire families, there's, um, you know, some are smaller, some are larger. The first one is the largest. It's about 600, 700 people who live there and has become like the model. It's in Italy? It's in Italy, in the uh, Florence, uh, the uh, Tuscan region near Florence. Mm. And so that one's the most developed because it also has an industrial park with businesses, um, profit-generating businesses. Uh, It's got a shrine called Theotokos. There's also a university called Sophia. It's a pontifical university. Mm. I would love it if someone got arrested there for breaking the one law. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Police officer, right, bus exactly, exactly. you violated uh, ordinance number well zero zero one. That's right. And in fact, I think when the young people get there, they do play that game. You're, you're arrested. You, you broke That's the law funny. of mutual love. <laughs> so one of the things that me and Nate were talking about is uh, helping our parishioners understand the notion of movements in the Catholic Church. Um, Cardinal George, when he, uh, former 
um, Cardinal of Chicago, when he had Robert Barron, uh, then Father Robert Barron, start the word on fire thing. He mm-hmm. said, um, you know, ever whenever there's a time of great crises in the church, mm-hmm. the first thing to do is to look for the movements. Mm-hmm. Because at the worst times in church history, and you can go back and look at the 1300s and the 1200s and, you know, all these times throughout history where things were falling apart. Those were actually the times when you had these great saintly movements mm. that started and still endure to this day. At the end mm-hmm. of the 1100s, you have the rise of the Dominicans and the Franciscans. Mm-hmm. In the 1300s, you have all these different movements that come about, um, you know, and, and and generate so much life for the laity. Mm. Um, and so Cardinal George used to say, right now I'm looking for the movements. Where are the movements mm. on the horizon? And uh, so I let's talk a little bit about focolare. One, what does that mean, right. focolare? What does the name mean? Right. So focolare is an Italian word which means hearth or a home. Mm. And um, in fact, so when people say I'm going home, they're going, they, they'll say I'm going to my focolare. Mm. Um, okay. And so... But that's not the official name of the Focolari movement. That's okay. the popular name. Oh, okay. Because the first me- women who started um, during World War II were um, so on fire for the love of God and so loving to the people they met that wherever they went, they created this warmth, this family environment with, with everybody. Of course, it they were from Trent, so Italian, so that's kind mm. of easy for maybe <laughs> Italians, but but this warmth is what they were known for, but also being on fire. Christ said, um, or I think it was St. Catherine of Siena, I've come to bring fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were ablaze or something. Yeah, you know? yeah Christ said that in Luke's oh, Christ, Gospel. Yeah, I've come to light a fire in this earth, and how high right. I wish it were already blazing. Exactly. So, hey, Catherine of Siena, what did she be say? Be who you were meant to be, and you will set the world on fire. That's, there that's, it that's is. That's why I'm confusing them. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, so th- th- they were the, th- this sort of, per- I mean, their personalities were such that um, they started to be called, oh, they're the focolarini. Uh, in Italian, foco- the, the ending something with an I, it makes it plural. So the folk arenas, there they go. Um, and so they had this reputation of being crazy for the Lord. Yeah. <laughs> now remember, this is in the 40s. And um, already then they were talking, sharing their experience of how during the bombings, they would run to the air raid shelters and all they would take was a book of a small book of the Gospels and would read it at candlelight which was already a big deal because laity were not supposed to be reading the gospel. It was that was the charism of the priests, and only uh, only the priests were allowed to interpret. Yeah. <laughs> so it, they were radical in that sense. Every great movement in the church starts with returning exactly. to scripture. Exactly. Yeah. And so from from those experiences of constantly going to the air raid shelters, the words of the gospel would come to life in their lives. So. Mm. Um, they would come with questions, for example. Um, well, their first experience was that God is love. And they had never heard anyone speak about God as love. Not priests. Not <laughs> but it was a discovery. It was like a, an illumination that everything became beautiful from the perspective that God is love. To the point that they wrote that if we were to die, we, we wanted to be buried in the same tomb the ex- and the only inscription we wanted was, and we have believed in love, which I didn't understand initially, but what I understood later was, even in the midst of tragedy, we have believed in love. This is, mm. this is what they were trying to convey with that. 
So then they, with this love in their hearts, they asked, how can we love God back? Because love calls for love with our own little hearts. And so again, the gospel, in one of these moments, they went into the air shelter. They read, not the one who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father. And so this was an important uh, insight for the founder, Kiara Lubick, because at that point in her mentality, sanctity or holiness was reserved only for priests and women religious who joined orders. And she thought that was her calling as well, to become a nun. But she had tried it, and her spiritual director said, nope, I don't think this is for you. So there was, she was struggling with this, you know, when she realized that the saints are the same and that each one did the will of God. Of course, they're so unique among themselves. St. Catherine of Siena is not St. Teresa of Avila, but each yeah. one did the will of God. So she realized a big wall that seemed to separate her from holiness suddenly collapsed because she, she saw her sister who was married and she understood, but if you live the will of God in your life, you can become a saint just as well as anyone who's consecrated or a priest. And so that was another major understanding that the will of God leads us all to, to holiness. It's so fascinating because, you know, in the one sense as, you know, we can tend to golden age things as Catholics, right? And we can golden age the, the time of the church before the collapse of the sexual revolution, 60s and mm. druggy 70s and all that stuff. And, you know, when, when the simpler form with the Latin mass and all this stuff and everything was, was so Catholic. Hmm. But you find that there, there were dominant things within pockets of Catholicism that weren't Catholic, even though they were Catholic, right? So hmm. you could have people who have never heard of the love of God or the universal call to holiness, right? Even mm -hmm. though that was teachings of the church. And, you know, you can read St. St. Francis de Sales, greatest spiritual director in the history of the church, right? Arguably, mm -hmm. uh, talking about this stuff about the, I mean, the whole uh, introduction of outlife is written to a lay woman, mm. and the idea of this, but it was so neglected. Right. It was so neglected. In fact, it wouldn't be until Vatican II in the in Lumen Gentium, which is the do, uh, dogmatic constitution on the church, that there was a whole section added on under the laity called the universal call to holiness. Mm -hmm. And it was for so many people, they thought, if I'm going to be holy, I have to be a priest or religious. Right. And they never realized that the call to holiness is universal, but your vocation is how you live out that call That's to holiness. Right. Yes. But so many people don't. So there's all these, do you think about this, right? You got this, this, um, He's nicknamed the Sacred Monster, this grumpy tom tomist named Re Father Reginald Garrigou Lagrange. Oh, yeah, of course. And I love Father mm -hmm. Lagrange. I yeah. got a lot of his books. But uh, he was the one that was writing extensively on mm. the laity's call to holiness. Mm. And that that helped really form uh, Lumen Gentium. And so this, this notion that I think for some of us we take for granted, mm -hmm. but it really wasn't until Vatican II clearly laid it out right like you need to become holy pursue holy and sure. you can become holy right and what's funny is um the uh, the local parish was uh franciscan oh yeah the capuchins were constantly um looking out to what are they doing now yeah. what are these crazy girls doing now? <laughs> <laughs> the same thing that saint uh claire was doing right. you know back in her day well yeah. in fact the the founder took the name claire her original her name is really sylvia but she took the name Claire mm. because, um, you know, the story is Claire was following St. Francis, you know, in, yeah. incognito or in the background 
until finally they came face to face, and he he asked her, um, daughter, what do you want? And her response was, God. Mm-hmm. And so um, that only desire for God was what the founder of the Focolare movement wanted and desired. Yeah. And so she took the name Claire precisely because um, because of Claire's yes to God. So anyway, um, they asked themselves if we were to die in the in this war, uh, is there a will of God we could live that if we presented ourselves before Him, we could say we did what you wanted? Mm. And again, intense. and again, they looked at the gospel where Jesus says, "This is my commandment. This is a new commandment." Love one another as I have loved you. And r- really, they were simple in that as soon as they read something, they started looking for ways to put it into practice. Yeah. So immediately they looked at one another and they said, I'm willing to die for you and I for you and I for you, all for one another. And she says when they made that declaration, that pact, it was as if a silent brother had entered into their midst. And suddenly... Everything they were doing, no matter how small, took a jump in quality. And they felt this presence that seemed new. And so they, they said, what, is, what are we experiencing? They, Matthew 18, 20 had the answer. Wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them. Mm. So they said, we want to have Jesus among us, not just occasionally, but 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. So that was, the, so to speak, the, f- the start of what became Focolari, uh, the Focolari way. Uh, everything that's done in the Focolari movement is on the basis of this constant effort to live the new commandment, to have Jesus among us. But it's an uh, experience such that when people from the outside come into this environment of people engaged in having Jesus in their midst, they realize something's different. They say, "What? Why am I so happy here? What, what's mm. going on?" <laughs> but it's it's the, this new evangelization. Look at how they love one another, which is yeah. what um, is it Tertullian or Origen or I think Tertullian is the one who said of the first Christians, the pagans would say, "Look at how they love one another and how they're willing to die for one another." And then they'd say, "I want to be part of that." So that's that's how uh, Christianity also spread. So. Um, and so these were just spiritual insights that were forming the pillars of what would become this new spirituality in the church, also called the spirituality of communion, the spirituality of the Trinity, so to speak. Mm. I don't know if you know this, but um, there's only two times in history when a pope has pr- proposed the spirituality to the entire church. Mm. The first was Paul VI, who during St. Ignatius of Loyola's lifetime read and lived through the spiritual exercises that he had written, and then he wrote something like an apostolic letter saying, I propose this spirituality to the whole church, I find it it's beneficial, and the second time was in the year 2000, John Paul II, when he wrote Novo Millenio Ineunte, mm-hmm. he was basically proposing the uh, spirituality of the Focolari movement to the entire church. Wow. Yeah, and so in, because he was looking ahead uh, because we were starting the third millennium, the mm-hmm. year 2000, he was prophetically saying, what do we have to be in order to meet the challenges that we're going to be presented with in the, in the third millennium? And he said the church has to increasing, increasingly become more and more 
the home and school of communion. And so he he basically proposed the spirituality to the whole church. So are these movements, are, are they basically just different types of spiritualities that we can approach right. our oh. journey with Christ with, or is there something different that makes something a, a movement? Very good. So, well, let me a- answer that by saying Tillard, this the- theologian Tillard, said a charism has mysterious continuation with all of tradition, but also is able to present something new in a particular moment in history. So charisms tend to have that characteristic of newness. For example, we all know blessed are the poor in spirit because that's the gospel. But it took a St. Francis of Assisi for us to discover what that meant (laughs) when the church had become very wealthy and powerful and the Holy Spirit, you know, like you said, sends these, gives these charisms uh, like injections into the church where he wants us to focus on particular areas. Um, and see, he sends these great charisms, these charismatic people who remind us to return to the gospel, in this case with St. Francis, um, poverty, with St. Teresa of Avila, prayer, with St. Ignatius of Loyola, uh, obedience, and, and so on. One of our members of the movement, who is an oblate of Mary Immaculate, his name is Father Fabio Ciardi, He wrote a book entitled Christ Explained Throughout the Centuries, where basically it's a history of the spiritualities, how we know all of the the truth was contained in the Gospels, but through the Holy Spirit and through these um, charisms, something about Christ is understood in a new way. So what this particular movement, charism, what aspect of the Gospel it underlines, let's put it this way, is John 17, 21, that all may be one. So the charism of this particular movement is unity. The gift of the Holy Spirit that he's given to the church through this movement is unity. So if we look at it as a coin, on the one side, unity, but on the other side, the cry of Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that uh, would take a lot of explaining to, (laughs) because we would say, how can... A moment of separation of of that cry uh, be the key to the unity that we're talking about. <laughs> so there's a lot of explaining to do there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, that's intense. Yeah, yeah I was not expecting you to say yeah. that. I thought you were going to say the love thing, and I was like, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> right, unity, love, Whoa, right. The cry of dereliction no, from the well, cross. Well, let me just say it this way: because uh, we can't create unity on our own. Yeah. Unity has to be a grace that falls from God. What we can do is create the conditions to merit the grace of unity. And the conditions are the new commandment, just like I described. This literal looking at <laughs> like they did, I'm ready to die for you. And that was only the declaration. Later, you know, when it became difficult, uh, when suddenly they knew the person's old man or old person and their limitations and their lack yeah. of charity, what kept them going? It was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That love that gave everything, that lost everything, even apparently his divinity, gave it all out of love. Mm. And so that level of love, uh, that level of unconditional love is what keeps everyone on the uh, road to holiness, also uh, creates the conditions for the mystical aspect of this uh, spirituality, which is unity, to experience it, the sense of becoming one. It's something that is common, a common experience in this spirituality, 
the dimension of becoming one all the time, not just once in a while. <laughs> like some saints say, do mention it, but not as a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so t- to make that possible, we all have to be espoused to Jesus forsaken, to, yeah. to Christ. So uh, he's the one who ke- helps us to keep going, keep loving, keep starting again. Keep reconciling, keep forgiving. <laughs> so that, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's one of the major yes. themes of the Focolare movement. Absolutely. Reminds me of uh, the uh, missionaries of charity and how Mother Teresa has in yeah. every missionary charity house. It says, yes. there's a big crucifix and it says, I thirst. Yeah. Um, because that was one of the. Sure. Yeah. It was a beautiful relationship between Mother Teresa and Kiara Lubick. You can mm. see them walking hand in hand at the conference that was held on, on women when I think uh, John Paul II released Mulieris Dignitatem, mm. um, and they constantly called each other, encouraged each other. Uh, um, once uh, Mother Teresa told Chiara, you know, what I can do, you can't do, but also what you do, I can't do. Just to say that their charisms, uh, God was using them in different ways, but always. Um, for building up the church, yeah. um, so that was a beautiful relationship. Yeah, well, that is that is fascinating. Yeah, especially I think I, I I guess I have some questions in terms of like what what is meant by unity. Right, you know that Philippines uh, city that you mentioned that they Tagaita. Oh, right, good they, question. They have uh, you yeah. know uh, obviously interfaith relationships, with, which is sure. good. We should seek understanding right. in that kind of thing. So yes. where do you how 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 can you be united as a Catholic when I went to Catholic school. I was taught over and over, like right. Catholics are are correct. They have the right. one have true faith. Truth. Yes, exactly. yes. So uh-huh. how how is unity played out in sure. a, in that situation? So the way unity is experience, and when it is, it's ineffable. You can't put it into words. It's ineffable. You feel it. You experience it. You enjoy it. Um, but it's ineffable. Everyone rejoices when it's there. Everyone suffers at its absence. This is the experience of unity. We Catholics are in a a privileged um, uh, position to experience unity because we have the Eucharist, Mm -hmm. you know, the sacrament of unity. And so we have just so many um, graces to be able to experience that fullness of unity, that union with God and union with one another at the same time and in a communion that can only be expressed deeper and deeper and deeper. So in this movement, because we experience unity, because it's, we have the tools to be able to, um, to make it our experience, others who are not Catholic come into the environment of this unity that we're living, and they experience something new. They experience uh, what's going on. There's just a peace. There's a joy. There's a generosity. There's a, a sense of the divine that I just can't put my finger on. <laughs> but I feel it. I see it in the way you look at each other, in the way you talk, in the way you're attentive to each other. And so we, you know, we tell them it's, it's, we tell them how we're trying to live, first of all, the new commandment. And uh, if they're, for example, of a different religion, we say, well, isn't the golden rule also present in your religion to do unto the other as you would have them do to you or not do to the other? Well, that can be our starting point. That can be our point of, so we do to you what, what we would want be uh, mm-hmm. done to us and, and vice versa. Yeah, it's not do unto others uh, if they're on the process of converting. Exactly. <laughs> you know, no, just, exactly. And that, yeah. and that complete freedom, and, and John Paul II said this, first we build bridges, first we form friendships. Yeah. And then when the trust is completely there, when they know we're not trying to convert them, we know they're not trying to convert us, 
um, they'll ask, well, tell me about your God. And that's an opportunity, he said, to make a respectful announcement. And because there's already that soil that was cultivated, the grace of unity also enters into their own experience. It's an incredible experience. I mean, yeah. uh, I was hesitant. In fact, when my mom found out that I was getting involved in the Focolare movement and found out that the, the, founder, the founder was going to Japan to speak to 10,000 Buddhists, she immediately called the archbishop to find out, is this a Catholic? <laughs> um, and he said, he said oh, I mean, he, said, he assured her it's, it's a Catholic. And even the Catholic Church uh, uh, from Vatican II, we started opening up these dialogues, interfaith dialogue, ecumenical dialogue, yeah. um, to start to get to know one another and build bridges. And so the focolari, in the sense, makes inroads where then... The, I mean, the cardinals in charge of these um, dialogues can then, you know, carry forward or affirm or mm -hmm. purify if necessary. Yeah. It's always interesting because I studied ecumenism in grad school at mm -hmm. Franciscan, and we had this guy who was a Graymore friar. Mm. And the Graymore friars were all Franciscan, Anglican Franciscans, who they thought the whole Anglican church was going to convert back to Catholicism. Mm -hmm. And when that didn't happen in the 1920s or 30s, their whole religious order right. became Catholic. And they run from that point on the Ecumenical Institute in Rome and all this different stuff. Mm. And they're at the forefront of a lot of ecumenism. So I had a great more father teach me and coincidentally Brian Jones. Mm -hmm. We were uh, the lowly coordinator of uh, liturgy. We were in uh, class together. And it was so fascinating to go through what the church calls true and false irenicism, right? Irenicism being from the Greek word of peace. Mm. Like how do we make peace with those who are inside and outside and all this stuff? And oh, yeah. how do we relate to Protestants today and Jews and Muslims and how do we have that? Right. And the idea of dialogue kind of, it feels like so wishy-washy today mm -hmm. because everyone uses it to describe everything. But it's like, how can I get all the way down to the bedrock foundation where I can see you as a human person exactly. who has similar hopes and dreams and mm -hmm. goals and all this stuff? And how can we coexist and cooperate in a way that doesn't diminish right. and is not me just, you, it's not just an opportunity for me to convert you, but as an evangelist, I'm always looking for those opportunities. Mm -hmm. But the funny thing is, it's almost always the Christians leading those things. Mm -hmm. We don't collapse what we believe in. We, you know, never do that. We always bear witness to Christ and His cross and, and resurrection. Right. Yeah, because yeah. we don't want to create a syncretism. We don't yeah. want to create a mixture. John Paul II said, "There are seeds of the truth in almost every religion, yeah. and because we have the fullness of truth, we can help those seeds grow yeah. and uh, with a lot of humility." You know, it's just how do you dialogue ha being a church of 2,000 years with the local congregation church that started maybe 10 years ago. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah. It takes a lot of humility just to say, oh, well, tell me about your church. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I I'm happy to go to your house for lunch. <laughs> yeah, it was funny. I, I did this interfaith thing uh, at the Lone Star Community College, and I, they said, okay, we got a representative from Roman Catholicism, from... Presbyterianism from some other thing. I can't remember what it was. And then Unity Circle of Light, which is like a <laughs> transcendentalist movement oh. <laughs> church, quasi-Christian. Oh. And uh, so I went first, and they're like, you have 20 minutes to explain the history of your faith. And I was like, 2,000 years and 20 minutes. Let's mm -hmm. do this. Then I start off by saying, Jesus Christ was the greatest teacher, greatest blah, 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 blah. But that's not all he was. Right. Jesus Christ, first and foremost, is Savior. He's the Son of God, second person of the Trinity, blah, blah. And I explained it. And the woman who was the pastor from Unity Circle of Light, she came 
later after my presentation and uh the, so the first thing she says was we don't believe jesus was god we don't believe he was a savior we just believe he was the greatest teacher and, go, and so everyone just is one guy in the back's like oh <laughs> <laughs> pointing at me but then at the end it was funny because like a false irreticism and a syncretism hides the differences and pretends right. they're not there That's and right. is so fake and i saw it in one of our presenters right the guy that was the the presbyterian dude he was like well, you know, so this this guy's like, I'm a Brooklyn Jew. I don't really practice my Judaism, but uh, <laughs> I, I don't understand. What's the difference between you? <laughs> I, I, y'all look the same. And the Presbyterian pastor answered, and he was like, well, it's kind of this and a little of that. We mm. all just love. We just love. We just love. And the guy goes, nah, I don't know. I don't think you know what you're talking about. Let's go back to that guy over there. You, you were funny. You tell me. And I was right, like, well, right. here's the major differences. And so I just listed them off. And that guy looked at me and he goes, no, that makes sense. Thank you. Why was that so hard for you? And, he looked at the, and it's like, see, that that's the problem. It's like that's right. there becomes this point where if unity is built on hiding differences, it's never true unity. Right. That's why you know it's something supernatural that's right. when it happens because it's like, you know, when, when a Catholic and a Protestant or, or whomever are coming together, you can be like, there is something greater than our religious disputes that's happening right now. Mm, and yeah. I love that. It's, it, it's the first and final apologetic is that's right. love your neighbor. So, yeah, we speak of unity in diversity. This is important. And what, what happens, which is incredible when I first heard um, members of other religions say this, is that when they experienced unity with us, the Catholics, it seems that they felt called to be better Muslims, better Buddhists, better Jews. Um, because unity, I think, brings us to the very heart of God and helps us go to the root of our first relationship with God, which who then says, if you love me, love, love your neighbor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so uh, that's an interesting experience. So that the yeah. and then this could be seem a contradiction because we're not talking about uniformity, but this unity and diversity. Uh, how can that happen? And that's uh, that's the mystery, and that's that's the ongoing broadening of horizons. There is a very famous Buddhist uh, from Thailand who became so enamored with this spirituality and with the person of Kiara Lubick, the founder that he wanted to be part of this beautiful thing. And so he basically wanted the founder to give him a new name that expressed his new personality of unity or something like this. She gave him the name Luce Ardente in Italian, which is ardent light. And he came uh, and I sat with him. (laughs) So it's, it's just incredible how we felt like brothers of the same family. And yet he's a Buddhist. And I'm a, I'm a Catholic priest, but there is some sense of connection that's a little deeper or much deeper than the differences. So this is a miracle of unity. Somehow he's living Christianity as a Buddhist. And, and I don't know what, what that you know, is going to lead to, yeah. but at least we can sit down and look at each other as brothers mm-hmm. and feel the same pain for the injustices, the, the pain of humanity, and feel that we all want to respond uh, in a, a constructive way to know all, all the uh, suffering that we yeah, experience. To the hurts of this world. Yeah, so how do, you, uh, how do you see this focalare movement and your charism to it um, play out? How do you see that playing out at a parish level? 
Oh, well, it's um, the, the focal art spirituality is a path of holiness, just like any other spirituality. And so um, it's just that the uh, Holy Spirit brought it about in this way as a, a focal arena, if you will. Focal arena! My constant um, focus, my constant prayer, my constant, uh, my whole existence is how can I establish unity with this person? How can I help us experience this grace from God? So it starts with inviting everyone to go to the fundamentals of our faith, which is the gospel. And if we were to synthesize the entire gospel in one word, it would be love. And so and you'll, hear me, you'll, you'll hear me talk about this cube of love, which is just a tool, but um, it's got six sides. And I start introducing it to the kids because there's less, less resistance to, to receiving it. Um, but it's really something we all should be living. And it's just the six characteristics of God's love, if we if we look at the scriptures, and each one of these characteristics is is in scripture, but we we simplify it um, to make it easy to rem- remember and put into practice. So, and I've spoke one, about one of them, which is love everyone. I spoke about this in my homily, but that's only one of the characteristics of God's love. The other is love first. God loved us first, mm, and yeah. so be the first to love. Take the first step. Don't wait for the other to you. You love first. Then love everyone. And then um, love, the love we're talking about is always about agape love, the love of God. And so it's, it's concrete. It's made of service. And the best way to love concretely is to make yourself one with the other person. Jesus made himself one. He came down from heaven, became a human being out of love. So we can put ourselves in the other person's shoes. We can walk in their shoes, put ourselves in their skin. Uh, and to do that constantly. And so that's that's the second point. That it's concrete and the best way to live it is love, um, put, make yourself one. And then what's the motivation? Why should I keep trying to love the neighbor, the other person? So yeah, Jesus said it in, you know, in his discourse. When I was thirsty, you gave me to drink. When I was hungry, you gave me to eat. So he maintains done to himself whatever we do to any human being, especially the least. And so that awareness that whatever I do to you, I'm doing to Jesus. And I tell and I ask the kids, so if you say, if you smile to someone, who are you smiling to? Jesus. If you share your lunch with someone, who are you sharing with? Jesus. And if you talk back to your mom, who are you talking back to? Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> and if you disobey your dad, who are you disobeying? Jesus. <laughs> so they get it. And, uh, and this is something that we have to do always. Um, so let's go through that again. Yes. Love everyone. Love, love first. Be the first to love. Yeah. Love everyone. Okay. Make yourself one. Love Jesus and the other. And then everyone includes the enemy. Yeah. <laughs> love your enemy. And the enemy isn't just Bin Laden or uh, Darth Vader. It can, <laughs> you know. Jeez. It's Nate. Those two <laughs> Nate Hoffman. <laughs> right. Right. It's right. So it could be. Uh, it could be your boss who just. Uh, lost his patience. It could be your mom who's telling you to do your homework. Uh, it could be your dad who's telling you, go to bed. <laughs> yeah. So to love your, your enemy. And finally, the new commandment, mm-hmm. mutual love. Once you do it in your freedom, once I do it in my freedom as a response to God's love and the command of Jesus to love the other as he loved. Yeah. And we're doing it in the same social space then the presence of God is felt in that mutuality, and we can say 
Jesus is in our midst. So, um, and we want to keep him in our midst always. Yeah. If we live this, this is the basis of all our school, all our parish relationships from the staff to the children, to the parents, to the parishioners, no matter how frequent they are, how committed they are, but our parish becomes a little city of Mary mm. where people come and experience God's presence. I love that. Yeah. I know we just said love a, a billion times, but I, I love that so much. That yeah. is such a yeah. perfect yeah. dissemination of what it means to be mm-hmm. a saint and how to, how to live that out. Yeah. So, thank so you I'll, be, I'll be talking about that more and more and introducing it to the kids, to the school, to the uh, staff, to the teachers, to the parents, to the parish. So yeah. it's always my default mode. <laughs> One question I have about movements. We had a, a Legionnaire of Christ priest come, and uh, I was talking with him. He was helping with some young adult ministry stuff. Mm-hmm. And he had just come from Mexico City, and we were talking. And he said, you know, it always shocks me, and I'm never prepared for it, but it always shocks me how America and Canada are so driven by the parish Whereas mm-hmm. other countries, especially Europe, Central and South America, yeah. are so driven by movements. Mm. He's like, at the parish that I grew up at, there would be three or four movements. That's right. All at the church. And he goes, but here it's it's almost like priests are suspicious. A lot of diocesan priests can be suspicious of movements right. happening in the church because they're going to take their parishioners away or take mm-hmm. their money away. Right. Or, <laughs> you know, all that stuff. And, it's, and it is interesting mm. that... The more we go to these mega churches uh-huh. where it's not a neighborhood, it's a regional parish. Mm-hmm. You know, we serve multiple cities here. Yes. That movements would be ideal, like the fostering of movements and yeah. uh, missionary endeavors and, mm-hmm. um, you know, all, all of that. That that would be ideal for a large parish because you're just one man. Yeah. Right. And mm-hmm. Father David Huss is one man and Father Matthew is one man. Like, you guys can't, it can't be your spirituality that everyone is following. That's right. And yeah. so that's where I see the great work, like a parishioner of ours, um, Paul from the show and stop movement. Show and said, yeah, yeah mm-hmm. we, we were talking a little bit, um, mm-hmm. the other day, apparently he has a meeting with you soon and, uh, yeah, yeah. I have been talking with him on and off for it. And it, it's such an amazing movement for families and for couples. And right. there's a whole youth segment that was really popular out in Austin, yeah. right over by my church. And it's like, they can do the things that I can't do as the youth minister or as yeah. the guy in charge of marriage ministry or right. marriage prep. Mm-hmm. And I think there's this fatal conceit where we think like we have to be the one-stop shop for everything Mm. and paul made this really great comment he said so many people who think well the church needs to do that the church needs to do this he said they keep looking in america to the parish to answer all that Mm. but many of these needs are met in these movements Mm. and the call to you know learn about these movements can be the very thing that keeps people in the church and i thought yeah that's a really great way Of looking at it. Sure. Our founder pre- presented the church as a garden with many flowers, beautiful mm-hmm. flowers, each one different from the other. So what does this particular charism movement do? It helps all the flowers not be self-referential yeah. and to discover the other flowers. Yeah. Some people are surprised that in the movement, there's the whole branch of the men and women religious mm. who already have their charisms. So you, so they said, what are you, isn't your charism uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola, what are you doing in the focal art? <laughs> and here is the interesting uh, experience that they have. They say, well, for the first time, I experienced unity with a Franciscan and a Norbertine <laughs> and a uh, Dominican. Yeah. And we actually experience a sense of fraternity, 
uh, a deeper relationship with God in that unity. And in that process, I became a better Jesuit. Yeah. I became a better Franciscan. So, um, so yes, um, each charism has something to offer for sure and beautify. And so in the unity, each charism's identity is brought even more to light, uh, more emphasized. So yeah, I'm, I'm always trying to build this relationship, not only uh, with other movements, and because this is something, um, I don't know if you remember Pentecost 98. With JP2? With JP2, yeah. and all these founders were there. Our founder promised Pope John Paul II that we would also work for the unity of the movements. Oh, and, that's awesome. Yeah. And so from then we started establishing relationships like with the St. Egidio community. I don't yeah. know if you... So with uh, Neocatechumenal Way, with Communion and Liberation. and um, Communion and Liberation is pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like a communist it thing. It does from sound right. so Soviet. <laughs> but it is not at all. It right. is not at all. No, no. Only, it is only in communion that we have liberation. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Yeah, there's a lot to uh, still understand, especially within the United States. In fact, the... Uh, the Focolari movement has, you probably, like you said, you haven't heard about it, right? And it, and yet it's in 182 countries with yeah. over 2 million members. Um, and it's very alive in uh, Europe, uh, Brazil, South America, all over Asia. But in the United States, it seems it took us a while to understand that it's through the parish, in the parish yeah. uh, structure, well, who knows? Maybe this will become some kind of hotbed or, or <laughs> Oh, Mariopolis. Yeah, who yeah. wouldn't want it to be a, a city of Mary? So, you know, but there's um, there's no just uh, something. Um, I don't know if you remember when um, Archbishop, no, when Bishop Gomez, who's from Opus Dei, became auxiliary bishop of Denver. Um, and all the priests were scared, saying, "What are we now all going to become Opus Dei?" and <laughs> And uh, and so they thought he was going to impose his spirituality. So Bishop Chaput, who was the ordinary of the time, he says, he asked his um, presbyterate, how many of you know that I'm a Capuchin Franciscan? So they all raised their hands. And how many of you have become a Capuchin Franciscan? <laughs> Nobody raised their hands. <laughs> so, so the point is... Um, You're a good role model. Right, exactly. <laughs> so the idea is to live it. To live in, yeah. I, for, I'm the first one called to live it. And yeah. then if anyone else is interested, absolutely, you're invited. And I'll share with you everything I know. But, um, but it, you know, so, um, so it's not, uh, not an imposition. It's my spirituality. Uh, it's a spirituality that I can't live alone because by its nature it has to be two or more because mm. Jesus, we're two or more. But already with the staff, we've already established that connection and we're already two or more, so we're already. There you go. <laughs> so we've already gotten started. Except for Nate, he refuses to love first. <laughs> I love he, second. He loves second. Only in response. <laughs> as long as we get started, that's, that's what matters. <laughs> that's awesome. Father, thanks for sharing everything you sure. shared today. That that I'm I'm gonna re-listen to this and, and dive deep, especially okay. that cube of love. I yes, think that's and be I'll I'll show you a real useful one. Useful tool. Nice. To, yeah. Uh, yeah. Nice. My wife and I made a photo cube. You know, you can make these cubes with your photos printed on all six sides. Yeah. And we made one of me and her in different pictures together, mm. and we gave it to the Jones family as a joke, <laughs> and. They their daughter, little baby Celine, who's not a baby anymore, but she became obsessed with it. And every time she goes to bed at night, she goes, Mr. Mike, send him. <laughs> Mr. Mike, 
That's pretty weird. Right, That's right. so weird. It's so weird, but I love it. But now it's time for a lightning round. You ready for a lightning round? Yes. All right. All right I'll go first. What is your favorite season? season Winter. Of the year. Of the year. Winter. 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 You came That's, to the wrong place. I know. I lived in Canada five years, mm-hmm. and I always tell people, if I had a choice of how I'm, I'm going to die... I would like to freeze to death. <laughs> <laughs> Weirdest thing ever. Never heard anyone Super say intense. No. I love winter so much. I want to freeze to death. No, but it's because I just, uh, I, my body overheats and I can't get it. I can't cool down so I can sweat a lot. I just love winter because it's like free air conditioning. <laughs> and so anyway, winter. <laughs> That's so funny. What uh, subject did you teach when you were in Canada? Uh, I, in Canada, I wasn't teaching. Wait, where, where were you teaching? In, in, in Medellin, Colombia. I oh, was that's teaching. what it was. That's what it was. I was okay. teaching at the University of Antioquia and La Bolivariana. So, is that what you're... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. So, I was teaching research methods, organizational <laughs> behavior, and theories of business administration to the second course. Oh. Yeah. And at Bolivariana, I was um, teaching the methodology of the scientific method of research. So... That's oh, what I taught. Wow. <laughs> so you're a genius. No, no, no. In fact, my my master's thesis is on intelligence, pre- uh, the measurement of intelligence, mm. precisely because it's such a mystery to me. <laughs> yeah. So my, my master's thesis uh, was on the Armed Services Vocational Aptitude Battery, which is the ASVAB, which is the test that is given to new recruits to place them. For first, to, they have to score a, at least a minimum. But then to know where to place them in the 121 job categories. So my thesis was, does general intelligence, psychometric G, is it the best predictor for job success? Mm. And my, my findings were, yes, it is. There's not much more than G. So if someone is high on general intelligence and intelligence defined as the uh, capacity for complex mental work, then that that's the best predictor that that person will be successful in the job. Well, it looks like I'm out of luck. <laughs> yeah. He's got some low G. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What is your favorite uh, short prayer? The uh, the the Focalarini morning prayer and evening prayer. Ti adoro mio Dio e ti amo con tutto il cuore. Ti ringrazio di avermi creato, fatto cristiano. Which is, I think, everyone knows. I, I I love you, my God, and I I adore you with all my heart. Thank you for making me a Christian. Kept me during this day. I offer you everything that this day will have. Make sure everything goes according to your will through Christ our Lord. I like how you're translating that from the Italian. Right, right, exactly. (laughs) How many languages do you speak? I speak three languages fluently, and I did study French and German, but I'm not able to speak them, but I can understand a lot. So English, Spanish, and And Italian. Italian, yes. Nice. Yes, I'm perfectly fluent in Italian. In fact, when I was in Italy, I I didn't have an American accent like... Some, something happened in between. <laughs> but P, the Italians knew I was, or in their mind, they, they knew I was Italian. They just couldn't pinpoint what part of Italy I was from. So That's funny. They were shocked, and I'd say, I'm not Italian. The universal I'm, Italian. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Your non-regional diction. Right. Yeah. In our households, um, we always spoke Italian. So I always say I've been speaking Italian for at least 22 years. So That's awesome. Mm-hmm. How do you spend your leisure time? Uh, I collect coins. I uh, what do they call that? What's the term? Newman, Newman, New, the Numismatic Society. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I collect different kinds of coins. Um, uh, some are rare coins. Uh, 
there are coins that have errors on them. And if you can find coins with errors, those are valuable. There's uh, coins that are collector's items. New Zealand Mint has all these awesome Star Wars coins. <laughs> <laughs> That I, I just, my language. I just I try you. to make sure I collect each one uh, every month. It's a, it's, it's a new coin, so I'm always up to date. What's the next one? And I put it on my calendar to make sure I don't miss the, the because they sell out immediately. <laughs> so, and then you have to pay more to acquire them. Yeah. So, anyway, that's what I do in my free time. How'd you get into that? Um, just, I just um, wanted to know because you know the bitcoins are becoming more popular, yeah. and I'm, and then this. Silver was becoming more popular. Mm -hmm. <laughs> also, just like an investment or make, yeah. making sure if I'm going to spend money, might as well spend it on something that's not going to just waste away. <laughs> something that actually increases right, value exactly. over time. So that I can give it to my, my nieces or nephews as you know, when I die oh, <laughs> or to the church cool. <laughs> as or a gift. Church. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We'd like to talk to you afterwards about our uh, end of life giving. <laughs> what do they call that, Nate? End of life giving. What is that called? Benefit? Planned giving. Yeah. Planned, Planned giving. giving. That's it. Mm. Yeah. Favorite book? My favorite book. Non-focalare book. Okay. Cien, <laughs> Cien Años de Soledad by uh, Garcia Marquez. 100 Years of Solitude. Oh, I've, yeah. I've heard of that book. Uh -huh. I've read it. I read it in Colombia in Spanish. Yeah. So it's it's a great book um, of how just in in the passage of time things change just yeah. so radically. Uh, but his style and everything was really great. It's really great. Nice. Uh huh. So yeah. No, he wasn't a focal arena. So. <laughs> no, fair enough. Fair enough. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. Father. Thank you. Thank Very you for having me. It. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll uh, we'll have to have you back when we um, and talk about something other than the focal arm movement. I'm sure Very you've good. got a wealth of information outside of right. that as well. Did I say that the official name is... No, the, I was going to ask yeah. you. I was like, wait a second, we didn't we get never the official did say name. It, did we? Right. The, the official name of the Focolare movement is The Work of Mary, Opus Maria. So the whole charism is a Marian charism. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. It was a lay woman. She was a lay woman, not a religious, not a priest. Her presence at Pentecost is very important. Uh, Hans Urs von Balthasar actually says, the church begins at the foot of the cross when Jesus entrusts uh, Mary to John and John to Mary uh, and the other women who were present, that that's, you know, yeah, the that's where the church. Of the church absolutely. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that's it. Not the Petrine. Yeah. And so it's embedded. The Petrine is embedded in the Marian. Yeah. 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 Wow. That's awesome. And it has implications in how we do parish. <laughs> My first T-shirt that I ever made for youth and ministry had a Hansers von Balthasar quote mm -hmm. on it, and it was so, people ha hated it. But it said on the back, it was the crucified Christ crucified, and he was like looking at you from his crucified cross, big crown of thorns, and it said he was blessed so that he could be broken. He broke you so that he could give you. And it's this Eucharistic vision of what it means to be a Christian. He was blessed mm -hmm. so that he could be broken. He broke you so that he could give you. And taken, blessed, broken, given, right? The Eucharist. Beautiful, yeah. And I loved it. And I fell yeah. in love with it. And I designed the T-shirt and all these kids. And I would have all these things come up and be like, now, what um, What does this mean? What, <laughs> right. what is this? What's right, yeah. Thing? Whenever Von Balthazar <laughs> comes up, I generally uh, oh, take, take my stuff he's, back he's from the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Thanks again, Father. We'll see you next time. Very good. Thank you for having me. So, onward.